0: Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: Economics Radio is sponsored by Robert Half. Robert Half research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you are feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Their specialized recruiting professionals engage with their proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, they know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.
0: From Stitcher and Dubner Productions, this is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner.
1: Hey there, podcast listeners, and happy holidays. This time of year, we would usually put out a repeat, but instead, we've got something new for you and something different. This grew out of a friendship with Angela Duckworth, a psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I first interviewed her a few years ago about the book she had just written called Grit.
0: I define grit as passion and perseverance for especially long-term goals. She is also founder and CEO
1: of the Character Lab, which tries to harness the science of grit or character development to help young people thrive in school and beyond. Then she launched another, even more ambitious project called Behavior Change for Good. And we talked about that on the show as well.
0: The problem with human beings is that they're human beings and that they repeatedly make decisions that undermine their own long-term well-being.
1: Duckworth was always so interesting and fun that we had her join us as a co-host for a bunch of live shows.
0: So is it true then that picky eaters and hypochondriacs are more likely to be politically conservative?
1: One thing Angela does really well is ask interesting questions. And I admire that trait since that's what we try to do every week on this show. So I thought it might be fun to just sit down with her for a conversation armed with nothing more than a question to ask each other. This happens to be one of my favorite hobbies, a mutual question-asking society. You never know where a conversation like this will go. More often than not, it leads to more questions, like Russian nesting dolls. And that is what you are about to hear, a little matryoshka of a conversation. We had so much fun making this episode that we are thinking about spinning this idea off into its own podcast, separate from Freakonomics Radio. You think that's a good idea? After you've listened, write to radio at and let us know what you think. All feedback welcome, whether you like it, hate it, or feel profound indifference. And thanks so much for all your interest and attention over this past year. Every month, nearly 4 million people around the world listen to at least one episode of our show. I'm glad you're one of them. Okay, on to this special episode of Freakonomics Radio. Happy Holidays. Angela Duckworth, question for you. All right, I'm ready. Let's say that you personally are granted one genie wish, but it's multiple choice. You get to be in the top 1% globally in either grit or wealth or intellect. Hmm. Grit, wealth, intellect. And now this is, let's say this is you are who you are. But not really. In I was other just going to ask, yeah, like, yeah. you know no, no, no. are we
0: talking about? Then you're going to be like in the bottom one no, no. percent of the other one. No, no, no. It's no. not that. And it's I just also, get to like upgrade in one dimension. Yeah,
1: let's say that. Well, right? no, that's tricky because you may already be. You may already I'm consider yourself. Gritty. Right. So let's say no. Okay. Let me rephrase the question. Not you, Angela Duckworth. You, person-
0: yeah, this is like Undefined. the veil of ignorance that, exactly. like, I'm a human. Right, who came up with that? It's um, is that John, like, is it Rawls? Hume, Locke? Rawls, I think. Really? Yeah, yeah. it's either Locke it or Rawls. It doesn't predate that? I thought it was, like, Ring of Gyges. Oh, my. <laughs> no. No? I think um the veil of ignorance is, like, you know, within the last 200 years.
1: So, let's say you put on the veil of ignorance, mm-hmm. and you are a new entity, and I say, you, O oh Veiled One, mm. get to be in the top 1% globally forever. In either grittiness, Mm -hmm. intellect, or wealth, which do you choose and why? That's really what I want to know is the why.
0: Hmm. I mean, honest answer, but predictable answer, I would choose grit. Because? Okay, so first of all, for wealth, I mean, I really just don't have any desire to be in the top whatever percent of wealth. And I'm sure you could do a lot of good with that wealth, but it's just it's never been, uh, you know, an appealing pursuit. So maybe not for its own sake, but then. F- instrumentally, though, I know you're saying like you could do great good.
1: Right. Or even if not great good, whatever the stuff you could hope to get with the grit or the intellect, couldn't you get a lot easier with the wealth?
0: You know, I think there's a huge difference. And my good friend and you may know him, the psychologist psychologist, Barry Schwartz, has um, Paradox
1: of Choice. The
0: Paradox of Choice guy. So, Barry Schwartz has something new that he's really obsessed about, and it is intrinsic motivation. And he would say, he calls it internal motivation just to not be confused with, you know, what some people call intrinsic motivation. And basically, he says, you know, if you have a garden and, you know, the garden is producing beautiful flowers and beautiful fruits and vegetables and you tend to the garden, there's a kind of worth, value and satisfaction that is that is different from if you like pay a gardener yeah. to like do your garden, and I think there is something about earning your accomplishments that I don't think wealth because wealth is kind of instrumental. Like, oh, I could pay somebody to, you know, accomplish this great research. It's different from doing it yourself. Or,
1: um, so I can't say I don't agree with you, or okay. I can't say that what I you think said you wouldn't
0: have chosen doesn't either, by r- the
1: way. resonate, yeah. right? But on the other hand, I could argue, well, if I'm if I'm at the upper end in wealth, then I could afford to have 10 different gardens that I would tend myself and have all different kinds of experiments and experience to figure out, let's say, I believe that the satisfaction that you just described Mm. of producing yourself, let's say that that is the most valuable thing. Well, I've just increased my ability to Mm. have even more of that.
0: I have a portfolio of garden investments. (laughs) Not
1: just investments, but a portfolio of gardening opportunities. Opportunities
0: that you would then tend. Yeah. Although, you know. It's hard to tend ten gardens. Well,
1: how do you know? You haven't tried it. You're not wealthy enough <laughs> yeah, yeah, to have right. 10 gardens.
0: That's true. I'm not even wealthy enough okay, to have one garden. Okay, but you're knocking out
1: wealth. You're I'm knocking out, out wealth. wealth right? Okay. But, you
0: know, I'm not, I'm not like, passing moral judgment on anybody who wants to be wealthy.
1: Intellect, you're also knocking out. Now, we should say you're— now, That was
0: the horse race. That's where well, I was you're, like, hmm. And you're a pretty smart
1: cookie, I have to say.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so here's what my husband would say my of me. Right. So my husband thinks that the great irony is that I have spent my entire professional career studying everything other than IQ. In fact, my doctoral dissertation is called Non-IQ Predictors (laughs) of Success. Right. It's like got a hyphen in it. Non-hyphen IQ. It
1: should because it's a compound adjective. For our listeners out there, you should hyphenate your compound adjectives. Yes. So if you have a high school teacher, it should be High-Hoffen High High (laughs) hyphen. It should be high hyphen school space teacher. Otherwise, you have a high school teacher.
0: Yes or yes, exactly. True. So or yes, that's true. Yeah. So hyphen, the kind of person who might say gonna... hyphen
1: instead of hyphen. <laughs>
0: yes, exactly. Right. So non-IQ. So I study all these non-IQ things like grit and delay gratification and growth <laughs> mindset, and you know. And so the irony my husband thinks is that really I'm personally kind of obsessed with intelligence and that I love it and I you know wish I had more of it and that you know I really enjoy people who are just you know wicked smart.
1: And you seek out and accord higher status to people who are smart, even if they don't seem that high status in other realms?
0: I really love talking to people who are fast. and that Fast? Yeah, like, their brain. And I know that's not the only way to be smart, but just that their brain moves really quickly, and you're like, oh, you know, and then, like, you know, it doesn't take them that long to process a thought and then move on to the next one. So he's right about that, but I didn't pick it, you know, not just so I can be, like, consistent with my brand, but I do think if it were, if, it were, if you, you know, you made it multiple choice, Stephen, so I can't really, like, You know, say that I wouldn't want to be smarter, too. But in the long, long run, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of really smart people who don't accomplish much. But in the long, long run, I don't think there are that many people who are just, you know, the epitome of passion and perseverance who don't, you know, do something.
1: Are you sure? I mean, Uh, isn't the world full of people that we don't know about Mm. Despite the fact that they've been super gritty and they've exercised as you just ticked off perseverance and passion and yet didn't, quote, accomplish enough to become known.
0: Well, this is the thing about multiple choices, right? Like, you know, you're... Oh, now you're blaming the test. Yeah, I'm blaming the test. I'm blaming the test maker. (laughs) (laughs) I'm blaming you, Stephen. Okay, so here's the thing, though, right? Because I think in a multiple choice where you're forced to pick one, you know, really, on any of these, you could say, well, what if? Because I think actually what we want to be in life, you, me, and everyone else is, you know, we probably want to be more than one thing. So you're right, grit isn't the only thing you need, you know, to be happy and successful. But if you have grit and, you know, good judgment or, you know, grit and humility, grit and a big heart. So you're right. It's not the only thing. But, you know, neither is intelligence the only thing. Sure. Right. So there sure. you go.
1: Well, let me re- rephrase the question slightly then. Mm. Um, think about the purpose, I guess, of life. mm And what you think is the highest purpose, or it doesn't have to be one thing, right? What you believe to be kind of...
0: My highest purpose, you mean?
1: Right. So let's say that in order to um, successfully reach or fulfill that purpose as best as you can, Mm. which of the following then would be most useful in pursuit of said purpose? Mm. Grit, intellect, or money?
0: Mm. Again, you're making me pick one, which I get it. Well, right? but
1: first, tell us what what do you see as, what's the purpose oh, of life? What's the you purpose know? What of my think? life? Yeah,
0: I'm just going to use that big qualifier there because I don't want sure. right. It's Fair not enough. you know not for me to tell you about your life. I think the purpose of my life is to achieve something. In other words, I do not think that the purpose of my life is to do something like be the happiest person or have the most experiences. You know, I remember distinctly the day I was taking a walk with my dad. I was, you know, young enough to still be like holding his hand and looking up. So I I don't know how old I was, but I was a little girl. And I asked him, so I was old enough to ask him this question. I asked him if he was happy. And he stopped because every time he had to answer a question, he would just stop walking. It was very (laughs) annoying. We didn't get very far very many days. And he said why would I want to be happy? I want to be successful. So I do think I inherited my father's sort of like, life is about accomplishing something important. And for me, it's, you know, I want to help kids like lead a healthy life. But I don't really think like, oh, I want to, you know, I haven't been to that country. Like, I want to see what that, you know, restaurant is like. I just, I don't care that much about like that kind of happiness. And
1: do you feel that you're driven toward that kind of accomplishment out of generosity? And good heartedness, mm. or because look, you've accomplished a lot in your life. Your C V reads like a track record of a successful person, right? Mm. Great institutions of learning, great accomplishments, da da you have a job, da da mm. nice family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Is it that you want to help other people, like I said, out of generosity, altruism, mm. or because you derive great pleasure and even mm. dare I say happiness from the feeling of accomplishment?
0: So Kant, Emmanuel, can't or can't, depending on how you want to pronounce it, said, I think, that if you do something good because it brings you pleasure, right, because it feels good to do good, then it doesn't count, right? And I remember when I, like, learned this, I was taking justice, you know, moral reasoning. It was, like, my freshman year in college. And I remember thinking, like, oh, what a guy thing to say. Like, I feel like it's, like, you know, such a, like, a oh, if it's not rational and it's not, like, you know, only because it's a moral principle. I actually think that a lot of our most benevolent and honorable motivations come from like a kind of visceral like it feels good so when you ask me the question like oh why do i care about kids like i really like them i mean i really like you you know give me a random kid i just like them give me a random adult like i don't know i often like them but not <laughs> as often as i like kids
1: where do dogs lie on that scale? oh
0: dogs are below kids i'm really kind of not a dog but person a, but a above adults uh, yeah well let's see um yeah dogs might be somewhere between no i kind of like adults. i think I actually like adults more and then you cats, like dogs the least cats you didn't ask me about cats yeah cats are like right there below kids i'm kind of a big oh so you're just cat a cat person, person. so i, I mean, just like asked cats... you about the wrong animal exactly gotcha yeah, yeah, yeah. so
1: you like cats more than adults
0: <laughs> yes let it go on the record
1: if an adult has a cat
0: then i like them 10 times more okay than a... yeah <laughs> yeah then... so i do get a lot of just like I don't know, selfish enjoyment from being with kids and like the idea that you could make some kids out there like happier. So there's a, you know, I don't think it's a, you know, purely, you know, an unemotional motive.
1: I really appreciate that distinction you just made. And it makes me think, you know, back to... The kind of grit theory of life, which is without a passion for something, then it becomes a little bit of a, you know, accomplishment for accomplishment's sake or success for success's sake. Right.
0: I mean, I think you can be a gritty person who's using all your grit for bad I mean, let me just be clear. Like, I don't I don't want to say Hitler that, was gritty. Yes. The canonical sort of, you know, everyone rolls out Hitler as the example of like, oh, but then again, there was Hitler. But in this case, yes. Sorry if, then uh, again, sorry <laughs> if my example is a cliche. Stalin was that also Hitler, gritty. Hitler, yes, yeah, okay. Stalin. Let's take Stalin for a little variety. Mm-hmm. But no, seriously, I think in general, one of the things that really motivates people to stay committed to something for a long time is feeling like you're part of something bigger than yourself. Now, again, you can be misguided, but very, very often It is a kind of like benevolent, you know, like, oh, this isn't just for me kind of motivation that that also it's maybe not your only fuel, but it's also one of the things that motivates you. So for me, like, yeah, I would pick grit because I feel like I would be able to achieve what I want to do with my life, which is to accomplish something for kids. Intelligence, I think, would also be awesome if you made it two choices. Of course, I'd pick Intelligence probably is my second choice, but, you know, why don't I just be the gritty person who gets all the smart people to work on this project? <laughs> That's what is basically my strategy in life.
1: Coming up after the break, Angela Duckworth has a question for me.
0: This is the question I could have studied in graduate school for psychology, but I took another path.
1: Which inevitably leads to more questions. Like how many Prince Charleses can there be in the room, right? Right. You are listening to this special experimental question-asking episode of Freakonomics Radio with Angela Duckworth. We'll be right back. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24 7 for claim related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? Or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com?
0: This is the question I could have studied in graduate school for psychology, but I took another path, and here it is. Charisma. The other day I was talking to my younger daughter, Lucy, and she said something about how you can't teach charisma. Some people are naturally super charismatic, and some people nobody wants to be with, and you can't get from one end to the other. Do you think that charisma can be taught in, like, I don't know. You've interviewed a lot of people. Who's the most charismatic person you've ever met?
1: Hmm. So I like the question. I could answer the most charismatic people part. That's easy. But let me go back to the nature of the question. So the nature of the question is charisma, learned or inherent, correct? Yeah, that's the question. Nature,
0: nurture, charisma. Okay.
1: So. In order to answer that, I would want to turn it around and ask you, how are we defining charisma? Because I have a definition in my head, but I want right, to know what so yours All right, so I'll go is.
0: first, and then you tell me yours, okay? So I think charisma is a kind of almost like a magnetic force that draws people's attention in a very positive way. So when we think of somebody who is, like, really charismatic, it's like you can't take— your eyes off them, and they're the star. They they sort of like, you know, it's not like you can't take your eyes off them and it's terrible. It's more like it, it's a very admiring and also, I think, um, kind of like almost an affectionate kind of attention.
1: Yeah. I think that was a very good definition, better I think, than I yeah. could do, because I was about to think that you were describing someone who could also be terrible, but then you saved it at the end by bringing in affection, right? It has to be yeah. a positive, right? I yeah. mean, well, I think we all know yeah. people who are charismatic, who have bad intentions. Well, I
0: think Donald Trump is charismatic. Oh,
1: gosh. I mean, I think... Do you agree? I think even the people who hate him the very most would agree.
0: Yeah, okay, so that's what I mean. I do. So I'm not saying that I... Gotcha, gotcha. Right, yeah. So, yeah.
1: So, I like your definition much better than mine. Mine would be something like... Charisma as the quality, someone having the quality that makes me want to do what they do or believe what they believe.
0: Oh, so you want to emulate them. Um, It makes me want to
1: emulate them in some way. So it's a little bit different than an Mm. inspiration. Mm. But it makes, I define charisma as somebody who embodies or articulates a... Whatever. An idea. Like a, a point worldview. of view. Yeah. That strikes me as like, yeah, that is.
0: So they're persuasive. They're like maximally
1: well, persuasive. not necessarily, because look, mm. the people there are a lot of people who hate Trump as a president who describe him as charismatic and plainly they're not being they're persuaded. Not persuaded. Right, right. That would
0: be me. Like, I don't think he's. Yeah. He hasn't <laughs> persuaded me a very much. So who. OK. So other than Trump, who? let's just name some people that we think are super charismatic.
1: So first of all, I'm really bad at fill in the blank. I'm better at multiple choice. But you asked me who I've interviewed that yeah, I think is easier. charismatic, so I'll yeah. name a few. Yeah. Okay, Wynton Marsalis, the musician. Mm. Now I happen to like his music, and I happen to like him as a person, and I happen to like his story and what he does. And he was just like, I just wanted to like have a stool and carry the stool around and sit wherever he was.
0: <laughs> he Follow was him just around. yeah.
1: He has a spirit about him Mm. that I find joyful and challenging and large Mm. and he has a way of dealing with bad things that people have said or done too that is very like yeah that was a that was a a crap thing and that's not my problem I'm gonna figure out how to you know how to how to do my thing well Mm. and I love that. You know, Bill Clinton, I have an interview, but I, I interacted with him a few times. He has.
0: Oh, if you Google it, because I have. I Googled it. I charisma mean, I didn't do a Yeah, well, you're like, who is super charismatic or, like, charismatic role models? Or if you go on YouTube and you look for, like, charisma videos, so you usually get, like, Will Smith, Bill Clinton. Actually, interestingly, they're mostly men.
1: When I was thinking through just now... I was coming up with men, and I had to like actively turn on the
0: yeah. You're like a oh, wait search I engine think it's over. Women. So I did yeah. think
1: of a couple. Well, well, let me okay. Let me finish my list because Clinton, yeah. whatever. But I think a lot of politicians, I mean, that's how they're successful. It's yeah. so like Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles that you and I both know a bit. Oh, my gosh. So charismatic. Super charismatic. Super charismatic. Also the mayor of London who we had on the show recently, Sadiq mm. Khan. Super charismatic. But again, I think there's a strong overlap between charisma and electability. Okay. right? Yeah, Probably not yeah. so surprising. Here's someone I found super charismatic, even though he's not, like, vibrant necessarily. Steven Spielberg. Oh, really? Because I don't know him. I found him. this was a long time ago, but I spent about a week with him writing a piece about him and and mm. i I found him really remarkable in this sort of combination of this is probably not quite right, but it felt like a combination of confidence and humility mm. that made him. Appeal- so appealing. attractive. So
0: appealing. Super
1: attractive. But now
0: I feel like our definition is getting too big, right? Because yeah. now I feel like we're just like, oh, and I sure like Steven Spielberg. Either that like, or I, I never interview charismatic guy.
1: people. Yeah,
0: well, and maybe. truth be told, I think most people that would be
1: characterized as charismatic are not the kind of people that we interview.
0: I would agree with that. I don't think you get many, like, except ground- for you. Uh, it's present company excluded. No, but I don't think you get much like mileage in academia by having, you know, charisma.
1: Well, that's probably not true. I mean,
0: I think you get a little bit, right? But here's the thing. Here's a narrower definition, because I don't want it to just be like, oh, people we like, you know, or likability. I think that when most people think of charisma, they're thinking about a public, you know, public speaking, you know, like TED or some other venue, you know, where it's not just like, oh, you and Marsalis just happen to be at a coffee shop and like he happens to be really – I mean, I know we use that word charisma also to describe those people. But in that case, then the question is like, what makes somebody who's in a kind of public role – Really? Why did Hillary Clinton? I think Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton are a really good example, because if you Google Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton charisma. Do you Clinton think charisma, he did a
1: charisma transplant in her sleep and stole well, Okay, hers. So
0: you're saying the same thing that everyone says, which is that he was naturally charismatic and she was the opposite. I didn't and say
1: naturally, just, by the way, but.
0: Yeah, I did. I did put that word. Do you want to say it? It's multiple choice.
1: I have no idea. I mean, I've read a fair amount about him. My sense is that he realized from a very early age what he wanted to do, and figured out how to do it. And part of that was being charming. The first time I met him, like I said, I've interacted with him a few times in a... Just we, playing
0: golf or something? No, we uh,
1: we actually, um, we were, I warmed up for him as a speaker several times a few oh, really? years back. We had the same, I think we had the same lecture agent, maybe still do. Ah. And he was out speaking a lot and I was out speaking a lot. And sometimes we'd be like part of the same... Yeah, you'd be like, on the
0: docket together. And the
1: first time I met him... I came up. This is an example of his charisma. I had just finished speaking. I came backstage and he was standing there yeah. and he was nice and kind and chatty, whatever. And then check this out. He goes out to yeah. start his talk. And how does he start it? By complimenting me, the former speaker. He said something like, How about that Freakonomics? You've read the book. Now you've seen the movie. It was even better. Like <laughs> a totally gratuitous.
0: It was that warm, made me feel good. It was, good. Generous. It good, was yeah. super
1: generous. Yeah. So anyway, to me, that is like that's the fine line between like charisma and what's what's right before it or after. Because
0: yeah, like charisma.
1: I just looked up the etymology. I don't I don't know how accurate this is. The English term charisma is from the Greek, which means favor freely given or gift of grace.
0: Oh, that's so interesting.
1: Which implies a sort of benevolence. Divinity,
0: too. Also, it implies a kind of... Because if you imagine somebody who's, like, lower status than you being charismatic, it doesn't feel right. You know, it no. feels right for someone to be Oprah and charismatic, but not, like, somebody who is, you know... So, Wait a minute. Yeah. go into, Say, give
1: me an example. What do you mean?
0: Well, Tell okay, me so a- here's my view of... So, uh, by the way, I was an intern in the White House during the Clinton administration... Actually, I believe it was the Monica Lewinsky summer. What do you and, mean? You believe it was? You know it was. Wait, okay, I I know it was. I know that sounds. <laughs> I sound like a politician. Like, well, it may or may not have been the summer of Monica Lewinsky. And how
1: much did you interact with President Clinton?
0: Well, I was in the speech writing office and so I penned a few of his very short remarks including the, you know, address to the Land Grant Colleges. It was oh. a it was like a it was like a anniversary and I did get to meet him once.
1: Can you give us a phrase?
0: From one from of your speeches, on the, on maybe the on the land grant, yeah. the land grant. <laughs> That was a big deal. I, I cannot recall verbatim, but I believe that he expressed his, you know, steadfast commitment to this great American tradition. Wow, that's juicy. That? Thanks for there sharing you that. Go. Yeah. I was like 20-something. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So you met him once. I met him. And, you know, even then, because now I feel like, you know, in, in some ways, his reputation as like the go to charismatic role model has even become greater than it was during his presidency. And even then, everybody said, like, oh, gosh, all you have to do is be in the same room as Bill Clinton, you know, for a minute and you'll fall in love. So one
1: thing that people say about him and many other people who are, quote, charismatic is that when you're talking to them, they make you feel as if you're the only person in the room.
0: Yes. And I think he did have that kind of rapt attention. And so I will say that when I met him, I mean, it was something like all of 12 seconds, right? Like, he thanked me, you know, he shook my hand, he took both hands in his hand, like, you know, he used both of his hands to shake my hand. Did he right? kiss you
1: on the lips? He
0: did, he did not kiss me. I was not, I was not his favorite intern, I guess. But he does look you in the eye. And, and he did do something. Now, I may be conflating this with, like, YouTube videos I've subsequently watched on, like, how to be charismatic. Because, like I said, I find this just interesting as a scientist. He, you know, he kind of, like, you make eye contact, right? And it, it feels like he just wants to keep looking at you and, like, that you look away, right? Like, he can't take his eyes.
1: And his eyes are so intense that you just can't. Stay locked <laughs> like, on because you're like, afraid you'll melt? You know,
0: like I, I can't say, but I tried this out. So I'm like watching these YouTube videos now. This is fast forwarding, you know, like many years, like a couple decades later. And it was actually during my book tour and I was... You know, sort of like both interested in charisma, but also I was like, oh, when you're when you're signing books for a line of people where you can only interact with people for like six or seven seconds, like what advice do you have? To-? So I'm Googling charisma and here's something that I found on YouTube. Again, this is not validated scientific, you know, fact, but... It said, for example, when you're in a receiving line, you know, don't look away. Like, you know, the other per- they're eventually going to look away, and they will, but don't be the first one to mm. look away. And I do think that's all about signaling to somebody, like, I want to be here. You are the object of my fascination. There's nothing else I want to do, but listen to what you're going to say next.
1: So did you learn to sign their book while looking at them? <laughs>
0: like, no, but I did try to actually um, not look away because I thought, well, first of all, I just wanted to try it and see. And I do feel like it was one of those, like, nonverbal cues Of respect right like okay think about the opposite like you know how people I remember this when I was in college there would be certain people that you would have breakfast with you know and you're in the cafeteria and they're kind of looking over your shoulder to see if there's someone better to like talk I hate that and this is just the opposite of that right so you're really just paying respect to the person
1: and did you also I mean if you have six or seven seconds you know you obviously have to be very efficient did you also say their names when they left? You mean the Dale Carnegie effect? Exactly. The power of positive. Wait, not the power of positive. How to 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 win friends friends and influence influence people. people. So
0: the Dale Carnegie effect where you say someone's name, Stephen, right? Do I do that? Well, you know, I think Dale Carnegie was right about a lot of things and I think he's right about this one, which again, all you're doing is you're giving somebody a cue that they matter, right? And I think a lot of charisma is like this person really thinks that you matter, but it's only half of the equation, right? I think you also, have to signal that you're high status. So, you know, it's kind of like I like you and I'm worth and the world likes me.
1: Yeah. So w- what do you do if you're not high status?
0: Well, I remember figuring this out in third grade a little bit for myself because we moved. So we moved Mm. from like uh, one side of town to the other. You know, my dad got promoted and I actually think there were railroad tracks. So maybe it's like the wrong side of the tracks to the right side of the tracks. And it was January and, you know, it's the middle of school year. So I had to make friends and this new kind of posh posher neighborhood where the kids were wearing designer jeans. I was just like, well, how do I do So I actually had that problem, right? Because I had these like frugal parents. I wasn't wearing designer jeans. I was the new kid. There wasn't anything especially awesome about me. I wasn't very athletic. So I remember like explicitly thinking out loud, I think even maybe wrote it in my diary, like to make friends, you just need to communicate two things. I like you and I like me. So if you want to communicate, I like you, you know, eye contact, you know, mention their name, like, be interested in what they're saying. How do you signal I like me, which is really a proxy for the world likes me? That actually, I think, is is a little more, like, nuanced. But I think that, you know, smiling or, you know, basically not being self-deprecating, maybe things like posture help. But I think the most effective, you know, way to do it is for somebody else to signal that you're high status or that the world likes you. So you you
1: pay people to treat you (laughs) as As if you're better than you are, is that what you're saying? That, that
0: would that would be one way. You know, I didn't have a lot of pocket money when I was in third grade.
1: But. How did you signal as a third grader then that you liked yourself?
0: Yeah, I mean the thing is, first of all, I did. <laughs> just like I was like, you know, pretty so happy. So you just, just so you just
1: put the humility out there. I and just, let
0: <laughs> just, just like you know, like letting it all hang out. Uh-huh. And and I think I was like happy. I mean, I think that the people who like walk around the world and they do signal those two things. And I'm not saying it's a recipe to follow, but I do think like if you just notice the people that. Are attractive. It is so often that they make you feel like you're great, and they also seem to have like a healthy, you know, they have healthy self-esteem.
1: Let me ask you one last thing on the topic of charisma: Is charisma a not finite but limited resource? In that again, runs out. Well, no, 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 not quite. But is it is it not quite a zero sum uh, issue? But like, if there's a group of twenty people.
0: Oh, how many people can... How can be? How many people yeah, can be Yeah, because if everybody's
1: charismatic, then isn't nobody <laughs> charismatic?
0: Yeah, I do think there is something about, you know, when people are like, oh, they stole the show. I think that we use that language because there is a kind of exclusivity about charisma. And that's why I say it's there's something about status. Like, you know, I met the prince, well, Prince Charles. I was very young. I was in my 20s. And I think for him to be charismatic, you know, he already had the high status part, right? So he had half the equation, like, you know, just by birth and by everyone one else treating him the way they were treating him. All he needed to do is the second part of the equation, which is like when he's with you, to be completely wrapped, to be just totally fascinated by what you're going to say. And he pulled it off, I will, I will say. He was genuinely charismatic. So I think there is a kind of like, how many Prince Charleses can there be in the room, right? Like, you know, the moment a king walks in, he's no longer, you know, the highest ranking person.
1: That's... So interesting. And I never thought of like stealing the show in that way. Right. Because if you gain, somebody loses. So it is maybe not zero sum. But um. so if people listening to this want to have more charisma, is the easiest way to just surround yourself with people with really low charisma? Yeah. <laughs>
0: You know, the contrast effect I don't know because you're also trying to signal that the world loves you right so like I like you and the world likes me those are the two parts of the equation this is my little proto theory so if you really were someone that the world liked like why would you be hanging out with losers right so <laughs> well, I, like
1: I, a, I like how they went from nice low charisma people low to charisma losers,
0: losers. Gosh. I know look at that me yeah. being all high status and mm. all that yeah, maybe not the most charismatic thing to say <laughs>
1: Thanks for listening to this little stocking stuffer of an episode with Angela Duckworth. So, do you think we should do this more often as its own separate podcast? Let us know by writing to radio at Freakonomics.com. Meanwhile, coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, there is strong evidence that exercise is wildly beneficial. There is even stronger evidence that most people hate to exercise. So, if a pill could mimic the effects of exercise... Why wouldn't you want to take it? When we gave it to sedentary mice, the drug progressively activated the genetic program that is normally activated by exercise. The zero-minute workout, just in time for your New Year's resolution. It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Allison Craiglow. Our staff also includes Greg Rippin, Zach Lipinski, Matt Hickey, Daphne Chen, Harry Huggins, and Corinne Wallace. We had help this week from James Foster. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by the Hitchhikers. All the other music was composed by Luis Guerra. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on any podcast app. Our entire archive is available exclusively on the Stitcher app or at Freakonomics.com, where we also publish show notes and transcripts and where you can sign up for our email newsletter. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Economics Radio also plays on many NPR stations, so check your local station for details. And thanks for listening.
0: Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th.
1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only
0: one Met Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Imagine you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, Your red light therapy session is now complete. What just happened? You found your
1: escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you
0: wherever you go. New red light therapy now available featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included.